It's no secret that the U.S. spends a tremendous amount of money on health care, $3.8 trillion in 2019. And estimates suggest as much as a quarter of that is waste, leaks in the system. Think of what we could do if we got back even a little of that spending. You could spend it on more education, more public infrastructure. You could spend it on, on a huge drop in taxes. Today, how a bunch of small changes could save the U.S. big money on health care and what it would take to actually make that happen. From the studio at the Leonard Davis Institute at the University of Pennsylvania, I'm Dan Gorenstein, and this is Tradeoffs. Zach Cooper is an associate professor at Yale and one of the most well-known health economists in the country. But maybe his true calling? Plumbing. There are just all these sort of leaky pipes across the healthcare system, which, if tightened, would sort of make the system run more efficiently, would lead you to save money. Economists as plumbers. I wish it were my line. It, it's actually a line of, of Esther Duflo, who won the Nobel Prize. I tend to think that often the, we are not spending enough time and energy on plumbing issues. Zach is open to big changes in healthcare, but the reality is our political system makes it tough to deliver major overhauls. In the last 50-some years, we've seen just a few, Medicare, Medicaid, the ACA. So he figures, while we wait for the stars to align, might as well tweak, adjust, and tighten the system we already have. You know, plumbing. We got some of the smartest health economists in the country to identify from their research discrete problems that have discrete solutions and put forward the the steps to fix them. They're calling it the 1% Steps Project, which is funded in part by Arnold Ventures, one of Tradeoff's financial supporters. The project includes 16 evidence-based policy proposals that solve mostly wonky technical healthcare problems. Eliminating wasteful spending, 1% here, half a percent there ideas that will leave more money in the pockets of average Americans and the government. Add them all together, and the savings start to look pretty impressive. Let me get a calculator and I'll, I'll get it for you. I don't know that I have it. All right, so that's millions, that's billions, that's trillions. It's funny when you write trillions, how many zeros there are. Yeah, and it's going to be $340 billion. $340 billion. That's a lot of money dripping out of those leaky pipes. So we asked Tradeoff's producer, Ryan Levy, to get under the sink and help us understand some of these proposals. Ryan, you got your wrench? I'm actually the last person you would want near any plumbing problem, trust me. Uh, but I'm pretty good with a mic, so I called up a few of the economists and talked to them about their ideas. Look, I know uh, plumbers and some economists actually charge by the hour, so let's keep this short, please. That's a five minutes uh, to run through some of these ideas. Perfect. Let's do it. All right, good. Clock starts three, two, one. Okay, let's kick it off with an idea from Mario Machis, an economics professor at Johns Hopkins. There is a uh, severe shortage of kidneys uh, for transplantation in the, in the United States. There's a large waiting list, uh, and every year about 6,000 people either die while on the waiting list or drop out because they are too sick to receive a transplant. People waiting for transplants get dialysis, where a machine filters and purifies their blood. This is very time-consuming and expensive, and almost all of the costs are paid by Medicare. 
So an obvious fix here is to just get more people to donate kidneys, right? But Mario says there's actually a bunch of financial barriers for people who want to donate. And his solution would be to make those barriers go away. So it would be a comprehensive set of measures that would remove all financial disincentives uh, to living kidney donation. He would have the government reimburse all of donors' costs for things like travel, childcare, lost wages. Uh, he would give them insurance to cover any short or long-term medical issues from the donation. And finally, a tax credit, say 5000 bucks, to make up for any anxiety and pain that comes with donating. Okay, Ryan, two questions. Uh, one, how many people would actually get kidneys if this idea went into effect? And two, how much money are we talking about potentially saving the federal government? So Mario says this could generate an additional 12,500 kidneys a year, which is about three quarters of the annual shortage. And because transplants actually end up costing a lot less than dialysis in the long run, he says this plan could save one to three billion dollars a year. Now, on the flip side, that money would be coming out of the pockets of the dialysis companies, which they're probably not going to like. Uh, and Mario says that while pretty much everyone agrees donating a kidney shouldn't cost you money, there are some ethical concerns. There is a, a concern that if we reimburse costs that have an element of subjectivity, uh, for example, to compensate for risk or pain, we would slip uh, from, from a world where we compensate for costs to a world where we are paying for a kidney okay that's two minutes clocks ticking man tick tock uh okay uh let's go to an idea from yale economist fiona scott morton uh this one has to do with trying to increase generic competition for expensive drugs called biologics uh, a little background here biologics are pretty complicated to manufacture uh, they're usually administered in a doctor's office and treat conditions like rheumatoid arthritis and certain cancers. Now, there are cheaper generic versions known as biosimilars, but Fiona says a lot of doctors just aren't buying them. It makes no difference to their income which one they use. They have no incentive to prescribe the cheaper drug. So, Dan, here's a very, very basic example of how this works. Say Dr. Walker buys a biologic for $100. Medicare will reimburse her $100 plus a $6 profit. Now, if she buys a $50 biosimilar, Medicare reimburses her $50 plus that same $6. So either way, she's making $6. Now, under Fiona's plan, Medicare would pay Doc Walker the average price of the biologic and the biosimilar which would obviously be less than the 100 bucks the biologic costs. And what that means is that you, the doctor, should look out across all those competitive options and buy one that's, that's cheaper if you want to make money. And Fiona says when Medicare has done this with non-biologic drugs in the past, it actually forced the brand name drug makers to lower their prices. And Ryan, what kind of savings are we talking about here? So it all depends on how many biosimilars actually enter the market and how much cheaper they end up being. But Fiona says a conservative estimate is anywhere from 2 to $7 billion a year. And like the dialysis companies we talked about in the first example, I'm guessing biologic drug makers would be the big losers here because that 2 to $7 billion is coming out of their pockets. Exactly. Okay, one minute left. Can you do one more? Yep, uh, we're going to make it LTAX. I'm sorry, what? 
LTACs. These are long-term care hospitals, uh, places people can go after they've been in a regular hospital, but they're not quite well enough yet to go home. Uh, They provide basically the same care as a skilled nursing facility or a nursing home. But because of a 40-year-old loophole, Medicare actually reimburses these LTACs at three times the rate of nursing homes. Uh, We talked to Neil Mahoney, an economist at Stanford, and he says these LTACs are literally a case study in waste. That's his quote. Uh, He says closing this loophole and paying the 400-some LTACs, the same as nursing homes, could save about $4 billion a year. There are many areas in the United States where there aren't any long-term care hospitals. And in those areas, there aren't worse patient outcomes. If one of these LTACs shows up, it's not that patient outcomes get better. It's just that costs go up. Now, even though outcomes are the same, uh, there is one big thing that LTACs do that nursing homes generally don't, and that's ventilator care. Uh, And if some of these LTACs close or stop offering ventilator care after their reimbursement gets cut, Neil says some patients might have to stay longer in regular hospitals before going to a nursing home, which could cost those hospitals some money. And what about COVID? I mean, obviously, these LTACs are probably playing a really important role right now. Okay, uh, so real quick, that yes, that is definitely the hospital's argument, uh, and it could for sure make it a tough political sell right now, uh, as could lobbying from LTAC investors uh, who stand to lose billions if this goes through. And time. Whew, how'd I do? Well, you were a little closer to six minutes, but I think you saved the U.S. healthcare system like $15 billion, so it's all right. Uh, Pretty good for a plumber producer. Thanks for doing this, Ryan. Happy to do it. When we come back, we get a political reality check, try to hop on a moving train, and a case study. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back. The argument for the kind of technical wonky solutions that we've been talking about makes a lot of intuitive sense. They're drawn from research, expected to save money, and are less controversial than overhauling prescription drug costs or creating a public option. Does it make it more likely to happen if it's small things versus big things? You know, it depends. Elizabeth Fowler is the executive vice president for programs at the nonprofit Commonwealth Fund. She spent nearly a decade as a top health policy staffer on Capitol Hill, so she knows what it takes for an idea to become law. On one hand, she says, building a pipeline of these kinds of smaller ideas is critical. That's the way that you're going to fix the healthcare system, because I don't know how you're going to get another big ACA done, so I can see why you're gravitating to smaller things. But you have to put it in the context of the bigger picture and the legislative landscape. Elizabeth says it can be really hard for small, complicated health policy fixes to compete with other congressional priorities and get the 60 votes that you need to pass most legislation through the Senate. That's especially true if there's a powerful healthcare interest like dialysis companies or drug makers that could lose a lot of money. 
if something is universally accepted and we're just going to move it through and you can pass it by unanimous consent, you know, boom, you're done. But if somebody objects and you're going to have to use floor time, which is very valuable, you're not going to burn your floor time on one little bill. Elizabeth says the best way to get these ideas into law is by attaching them to a bigger piece of must-pass legislation. We used to call it a moving train. So something that had to get done that you could attach something to. We're seeing this right now with Democrats trying to include tweaks to the ACA and Medicaid in their $1.9 trillion COVID relief package. And this is exactly how Congress finally passed surprise bill legislation in December. Lawmakers tucked that into the big end-of-year measure that had to get done to fund the government. It was also one of Zach Cooper's 1% solutions and a pretty good case study of this approach to health policy. Surprise bills checked all the boxes, Elizabeth says. You need to get a health care law through Congress. You need a strong case for policy change. Is there evidence showing that this is a problem? Public opinion in support of a policy change. You need policy options. You need congressional and executive leadership that are willing to see it through and get it done. Even with all that, a fix took five years to make it through Congress as private equity-backed physician groups spent tens of millions of dollars fighting the legislation. But in the end, it passed. And that suggests to Zach what he's trying to do can work. Do I think it's easy? No. But I think it begins to shift the conversation to more concrete proposals as opposed to just sort of broad debates about the the role of government and broad debates about, I think, fairly ill-defined interventions. Zach hopes that by injecting some tangible ideas that are backed by research into the conversation, he and his fellow economists can convince some lawmakers to grab their wrenches, duck under the sink, and get to work. I'm Dan Gorenstein, and this is Tradeoffs. For more than 100 million Americans who get their health insurance through work, costs seem to keep climbing. One big reason? Hospital prices. Our outpatient prices were really high, over 400% of Medicare. Armed with new data, some employers are rethinking how they buy health care for their workers. It's time to quit nickel and diming the member. Get off your butts and get it done. Employers, hospitals, and insurers go to the mat. Next time on Tradeoffs. If you enjoyed today's episode of Tradeoffs, keep in touch with us between episodes by signing up for our newsletter. Click on the link in the show notes or on the big orange button at the top of our website, tradeoffs.org. And of course, you can follow us on Twitter at TradeoffsPod. And we'd love it if you left us a Valentine on Apple Podcast or liked us on NPR One or whichever app you use. Tradeoffs is produced by Ryan Levy and Christine Fennessy, Chief of Strategy and Operations Jessica Silverman, Communications Manager Matt Clyburn, Operations Assistant Jamie Song, Sound Designer Andrew Perella, and Senior Producer Leslie Walker. The Tradeoffs theme song was composed by Ty Sitterman with additional music this episode from Blue Dot Sessions and Sample Focus. Additional thanks to Nikhil Agarwal, Limor Daphne, Amy Finkelstein, Theta Scotchpole, Amanda Stark, and the Tradeoffs Advisory Board. Thanks also to all our listeners who helped to support our work, including Lori Fiber, David Gorenstein, and Vanessa Frank.
Tradeoffs is supported in part by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, Arnold Ventures, the Leonard Davis Institute of Health Economics at the University of Pennsylvania, West Health, the California Healthcare Foundation, and the National Institute for Healthcare Management. The views expressed in this episode are those of the individuals and not those of Tradeoffs staff, advisors, or funders. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.